You are listening to the podcast from Mosaic Church. Stay tuned after it for more info about how to get and stay connected with our church family. Now, let's dive into this week's message. Yeah. So, um, what in the world was that? <laughs> Most of you are thinking, like, this is what we get on Christmas Eve. We get a list of names. You came here for this. If you brought a guest, you're thinking, Morgan, can you help me out? Like, this is what I brought my friend for. Yeah, for most of us, I think we we can feel funny when we hear a a list of names read like that because we either feel offended on one hand or maybe we feel kind of bored on the other. We feel either offended because we're thinking like, is this some kind of like old school reinforcement of some like weird cultural thing or we feel bored because... You know, it's like, where's the part where the Death Star blows up? <laughs> where's the Christian special effects, Morgan? Like, where's the guy proposed with the girl and all that? No, no, but let me suggest a third thing you could feel about this passage. Not offense, not boredom, but here's the word, beauty. Beauty, because I think there's beauty here if we'll dig a little, and I'll go so far as to say that I think, if seen rightly, this is the most beautiful passage in all of the Bible. But I'll let you be the judge of that. So let's just ask, what, what in the world is this passage all about? It's all about, we're going to see tonight, this afternoon, that is, three types of people. Three types of people. First, we're going to look at them in turn. It's the begats. It's about the begottens. It's about the woe begottens. The begats, the begottens, the woe begottens, and each of them, I hope you'll see, in their own way, can help us see what Christmas is really all about. Let's begin at number one and take a look at this group of people called the begats. And begat is just an old school word for father. It means to father. Uh, it means to parent. If you grew up in sort of a traditional church background or home like I did, with the King James Version, you heard that word a lot. Maybe it was like a kind of a joke at a point for you. But So yeah, on the surface, for sure. In this list, there are a lot of begats. And by the way, please don't side-eye all of this because we totally do the begat thing in our own way today, do we not? I mean, how many? Come on. Ancestry.com, 23andMe commercials, I could go on. Have we all watched over the last few years all to find out where we're from? Or if we're honest, to find out if we're related to Adele or Beyonce or some president somewhere. And I looked this up this past week. There are actually literally hundreds of websites you can go to in order to find out a modern version, your own version of what we just read here, which was the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And every genealogy, yours included, tells a story. So what's Jesus's story all about? Well, who's the first begat here? Uh, The writer, Matthew, gospel writer, Matthew, he begins with someone named Abraham. Maybe you caught that up front. Uh, Abraham's a person whom billions of people around the world today in three major faith systems all point to as the founder of their faith in one way or the other. He's an important person. Why Abraham? Well, thousands of years before Matthew ever wrote this, back in Genesis 15, first book of what we call the Bible, Genesis 15, God made a promise to Abraham in which he said that through Abraham's family, 
he would save the world. He would grow Abraham's family in one day, one, at one time, one child would be born, every Jew was taught this, one Jewish child would be born who would be one day the savior of the world, that Messiah who would heal their land, who would heal the world, save the world. And so for generation after generation, a seed like a football gets handed off, gets passed down, generation to generation, most of the time without the family ever even knowing it was them <laughs> that God was using and making a part of his big redemption plan. And the point, therefore, of this genealogy is watching that seed, that promise getting passed down over and over again. We read, as the seed survives famine, the seed survives slavery, the seed survived anarchy and barbarity and then captivity, and the seed was passed down in obscurity until we come in the list to a poor Jewish family living in a little town of Bethlehem. And now finally, after what felt like an eternity, all the begats ended and something brand new began. And that's quite a story. That's the story of this genealogy. But what do we learn from all the begats? Here it is. Matthew is showing you this. He's showing you a single truth. When God makes a promise, God keeps a promise. When God makes a promise, God keeps a promise. And I want to tell you, that is good news for you today. I think I got about two and a half amens. It's cool. It's Christmas Eve. You're chill. You're in your best. You're thinking about the, you know, the big dinner later. It's all good, but I'll take as many as I can get. But listen, if you're here today, this is good news for you. If you've been broken by your past and who hasn't just a little in 2021, come on. If you're discouraged about your present, maybe you're thinking about giving up on your future. Yeah, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go home tonight. You probably, you thought you would never do this in all your years with this passage. Go home tonight, maybe tomorrow morning. Pick up Matthew 1. Have a good time reading all the names. No one's around, so you, they won't hear your mispronunciation. But read it again and again and again and say to yourself, look at this. Look at this. God made a promise. And God kept a promise. And if he can do that, I want to tell you, despite the failures of the very people he picked to be part of his plan, do you think even your failures, heartbreak, discouragement right now in 21, 21 can keep God from reaching into your life, can keep God from moving into your space, shaping your life today. Don't you think he is able to, at the right time, bring to pass his promise to you? I think he is. I think he can. I think he will. So you can, therefore, read these begats and know if it was true for that guy, Abraham, it's true for you. It's true for me. That's number one. The begats show us that when God makes a promise, God keeps a promise. Number two, let's ask, well, how does he do that exactly? How does he keep his promise? It's actually through number two, the second group of people called the begottens. The begottens, that is the loved ones. Begotten is just an old word. It means beloved, the beloved people. And so who are then the beloved ones? Which ones in this list does God love? Well, let's back up a bit because, again, when you heard that genealogy read earlier, you probably thought one of three things. Again, number one, you probably thought, what in the world is this going to be about? <laughs> number two, you probably thought, man, I feel real sorry for whoever they made read that list. You know? And again, great job, Brett Lee, if you're here tonight. You're the man. Or maybe you thought, number three, lists of family names 
aren't really that big of a deal. And if you thought that third one, I think the reason you may have thought that is because you and I, we are all part of a radically individualistic culture. That is to say, we don't think it really matters where we came from, what the people who came before us did or didn't do. Oh, but, but even if that is the case, we feel like that. We still make long lists, do we not, to show people who we really are. (laughs) They're called resumes. They're called resumes. We don't point to our families as much to show off. We point to ourselves, our degrees, our credentials, our Super Bowls, right? Our accomplishments. Those people, the point is, begin with their families. We begin with ourselves, but here's the point. Everybody points to something to say, here's who I am, and that's what this list is. This is Jesus' resume to say, here's who I am. So who does Jesus list? What are his references on his resume? Who are they? Well, for sure on there, there's a bunch of great men and a whole lot of not so great ones. Oh, but look at this, because this list includes what almost no other list in that day and time would ever include, and that is, count them, five different women. Look at them. Let's look at them by name. Verse three, there's, a, there's Tamar. Verse five mentions two, Rahab, Ruth. Verse six, the wife of Uriah. And verse 16 says, Mary, right, who's with Joseph. You ask, well, well, what's so amazing about this list? Well, here it is. Not only does this list, was it created in a day and a time in a, in a patriarchal culture where women, point blank, just didn't have a lot of chances to ever do something to end up on a list like this. And even if they did, they probably would have been left off. But also, women in this day were seen as unreliable resources. They were untrustworthy references to pick up the phone and call. They were prohibited from ever testifying in a court of law in this first century when it was written. And so Matthew, the writer here, looking at all of that, feeling all of that, essentially to all of that, he picks up this list and he says, so what? (laughs) So what? Who's on it? is who's on it. See, far from upholding some cultural structure, the gospel writer is breaking through, can you see, a glass ceiling of sorts and affirming what God has said all the way back since Genesis 2, which is that the begottens of God, the beloved of God, are not just the men, but the women. And not just the women, but the men. It's both of us. It's all of us. And as good as that is, and it is good, it goes way further. Because, let's ask, who are these begotten women? Well, let's look at them. I'm going to name them. Tamar. Anybody read her story lately? <laughs> she has a set of twins by her father-in-law. Yeah, that's right. Which men, again, by Mosaic law, not Mosaic church law, Old Testament, Moses' person law, she had committed incest. Oh, it would have been prohibited from ever entering God's presence. Then there's Rahab, she's a prostitute. Then there's Ruth, a Moabitess, a pagan idol worshiper for much of her life. Then there's Mary, social outcast in her day, an unwed teenage pregnant mother. Man, that was hard. That's hard today. Think about that back then. So in this list, am I getting this right? Keeping score here. Idol worshipers, prostitutes, incestuous relationship, unwed pregnant lady, all being pointed to as people Jesus Christ is proud to call as his own. And Matthew was saying, therefore, if you want to know who Jesus is, talk to them. 
pick up the phone and call them. See, on the resume of Jesus Christ, the forgotten are the begotten's. In the family of Jesus Christ, the broken are the beloved. The forgotten are the begotten's. The broken are the beloved. See, in ancient genealogies, kings were always pointing to the purity of their lines. and They were always making a case for why their, their blood was pure. Their blood was different. Their blood was noble. And come on, Harry Potter fans, you know this, right? Come on, you've read one of those books. It's a big storyline. Kings did this. They did the, the pure blood thing and so that you would follow them because of their pedigree. But Jesus' line is fundamentally different. His line is not racially, ethnically, morally pure. Hmm? Matthew is showing you, therefore, not just Jesus' kingliness, but his utter commonness. Utter commonness. Have you ever seen a king like him? A king who turns the forgottens in his kingdom into the begotten's, a king who turns the broken into the beloved, whoo, that's just who he is. Number one, there's the begats. Number two, the begotten's. And finally, there's a third group of people I hope you'll see tonight that can show us what Christmas is really all about. It's the woe begotten's. The woe begotten's. Right about now, if if you're keeping score at home, you may be saying, Morgan, you said there were five different women on this list, but you only named four. What's up with that? All right? If you're thinking that, I did that. I did that on purpose because Matthew is doing something here on purpose. Let me ask you, what was the name of that fifth woman that Matthew mentioned? Hmm? And the answer is technically, Matthew doesn't give you a name for the fifth woman. He gives you a story. A story. Who was the fifth woman? I think I heard Pastor Roslyn. Yes, our uh, pastor of adult education. Thank you very much here. She got it right. The wife of Uriah. Who was the wife of Uriah? Who's the mother of Solomon? Well, every Jewish person in that day knew. You likely know too. It's one of the most famous, tragic stories in all the Bible. It's a story of David and a woman named Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, the man that David had murdered after he had impregnated Bathsheba while Uriah was out fighting for David in a foreign war and just, you know, all at once breaking like eight commandments in a single day. Now, Bathsheba is the name of the fifth woman, the fifth begotten, the fifth beloved. Matthew tells you all the names of all the other women except for this one. Why? Here's why. He's making you fill in the blank in your mind and in doing so, making you remember and face David's failure. Not to shame David because David gets honored not once but twice in this passage, by the way. But he's doing it here, Matthew is, to prove a point. That in Jesus' line and therefore in his kingdom, a king is no better than a commoner. A king is no better than an an adulterer or an idol worshiper. And to get into his kingdom, the first thing that you must recognize is that neither are you and neither am I to get in. We must believe what Matthew is showing us here. That apart from Jesus Christ, we are all the woe-begottens. We are all woe-begotten and lost and outside the family of God. Until we come in like this. There is, um, there's this true story about this pastor I know. Um, he's a really good looking guy, like five foot 10, uh, fairly pale, amazing wife, four kids, maybe you'll meet him someday. Um, 
He tells a story about his very first day uh, on the job pastoring a church. Maybe, if, uh, maybe you, have, you can remember your own first day in your, uh, your job, first day there. He said the church, when he came back to this church, was in a tough place, and he was excited to get there to help all the people who he thought was in, were in need of his help. And he said he got there early on his first Sunday, and he walked in, and the very first person, literally the first person that he met, on the way in was this kind-looking lady, and he thought, here's the first person that I can help. So, but the lady walked up to him and said this, are you the new pastor? Yes, I am, he said. Oh, pastor, pastor, I need your help. Of course you do, he thought. Uh, it is me after all. Stand back as I help you, Christian person. She said back to him, it's the devil. It's the devil. He's all over me. I can't stop thinking about him. He's all in my mind. He's gonna get me. But I can't think about it anymore because I gotta go back in the nursery and hold some babies, so you'll excuse me. He said she just turned around and wandered off to the children's area while he stood there and he thought, what just happened? Still no matter, he said, there are plenty of people he could help who was next. So he said he made his way back to the other side of the building to make sure that, you know, all the kids were doing okay, you know? And the very next person he runs into says this to him, so you're the new pastor, huh? Yeah, I am, yeah. He said, the guy said to him, so what do you think about the end times? What do you think about the book of Revelation? Uh, you know, what's the mark of the beast? Who is the Antichrist? He said he mumbled, well, um, there are traditionally four main ways to interpret the book of Revelation, but I'm not really sure we're gonna get into that much today or next week. And he said the guy just got six inches from his face, face got all red, cheeks flushed, and said, well, don't you think you ought to know more about it if you're a pastor? Okay. He said, and he said, I guess, where's the restroom? <laughs> Knowing full well where the restroom was. So he ducked in the restroom, he gave himself his best pep talk and he tried to convince himself that he could help these people. Then the service began, thank God. And during the time of worship and singing, uh, some people were, came down to the front area to be prayed for during that time by a prayer leader. And he said he was beyond nervous to do this, but he did it and he got up front because he didn't have a title, so he's supposed to do this kind of stuff. And then came up, the very first person to be prayed for. He was thinking, I can do this, I can do this. What do you need, like a miracle? I mean, like a, like a Bible verse, I got that, like a hug, I can give those. Would this person say, I'm so glad that you're finally here. He said that she actually said this to him. I'm thinking about leaving the church now that you're here. <laughs> Would you pray for me to know whether I should leave or not? He said the sheer shock just caused him to block out like the next four hours of his life. He said he experienced this other version of PTSD, pastor's traumatic Sunday disorder. It's, it's a thing. But that okay, shake it off, because you can still help people through your message. But he knew he was up against some high expectations. The person who had been pastoring before him was his great Bible teacher, knew it all, done it all, preaching workshops. People uh, literally subscribed to this old guy's mailing list to get on uh, his, uh, to get his tapes and his you know, CDs back in the day. So this is what people were used to. So what did the new guy bring? What did this pastor bring? It was some overly clever attempt at being relevant. The title here was, Why the Answer is a Mystery. Oh, it's catchy, right? No, no. The response, about like that. <laughs> Crickets, silencio, nada. He said it was like trying to hand out Aaron Rodgers for president t-shirts at the Dallas Cowboys game. Okay, thank you. I'll be here all week. He said, you know the only really good thing about that message? He said it was better than the next week's. Oh, 
But really, he, that is, of course, I, had totally failed everybody that day. Why? I thought I was the one who could fix them, help them, make it all okay. But looking back, I did learn one thing in hindsight, which I think was not only the point of the day, but the point of Christmas in the Christian faith, which is this. I was the one who needed help. I needed to learn I was no better than a struggling lady in the nursery, a strange guy in the hallway, or anyone else. I was as woe-begotten and in need of help as much as anyone from Jesus Christ. Let me ask you, do you know this? Do you know oh, that the king and the prostitute, the educated, the ignorant, the morally good and the morally broken are all equally in need of saving? Listen, we're all looking for a way to make ourselves a somebody, to get a name for ourselves, to be a someone. And the way most of us do this as Americans right now in 2021 is usually one of three ways. Number one, we just straight look down our noses at somebody else. Like those people are bad. Those people are wrong. This political party is bad. You voted for him. You're ruining the country. Or number two, we say, listen, uh, no, no, I, I avoid God because we say, I'm too smart. I work too hard to need a God. I got here all by myself. Really? Really? All right. Let me suggest to you that most of, if not almost all of the good things in your life are fundamentally and will be fundamentally outside your control. If you were born blind on a mountain in Tibet in the 13th century, we wouldn't be having this conversation. You would know you are in need of rescue, saving, and help. Or the third way, we avoid God. Maybe like some of us say today, you say, I can be good without God good without God. But don't you see what Matthew's showing us here? That the point of the gospel is that it isn't for those who think they're good. It's for those who know they're not. What was the point? What was the, 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 the first thing of Jesus' first teaching, the beginning of it? He said, blessed are the who? Come on. The poor in spirit. Not the rich in spirit. Not even the middle class in spirit. The poor in spirit. Not the those who think that someone else is in need of saving, but it's the one who renounces his or her own name and admits they have no other hope than to be rescued by Jesus. That's the one who is blessed, part of his kingdom. And that's why Christmas had to happen, because we needed a savior. Let me ask you, look at this, look at this genealogy. Why were any of these names read? They were only read because they are eternally connected to Jesus. You don't care about Ram, Aminadad, you know, Nashon, Salmon, if that's even how you say it, right? I mean, you don't even know it. You don't even care about them. The only reason we're reading them is because they're connected to Jesus. Some of them are more well-known than others, but even, even David, whom you probably know, had his kingdom failed. His line ended. It was over for centuries. He would have fallen into obscurity and irrelevance had not Jesus resurrected him. It would have been forgotten if it hadn't been connected to Christ. And let me tell you, your name, it'll be forgotten too. Your own little kingdom, mine will, it'll all end. It'll all end. We don't even know, most of us, our own great-grandparents' names. What makes you think someone's going to remember yours? To have real significance, a life that counts, a name that lasts, you have to say, I am one of the woe-begotten's and Jesus, I'm calling on you to bring me into your family today, tonight, this Christmas Eve. Listen, 
And God has promised that all who call on the name of Jesus will be saved. And when God makes a promise, God keeps a promise. Hope you can say amen to this. Let me take a moment and pray for us tonight. Lord, I'm praying for us, that for our hearts, we would remember we were so bad, you had to come. But you loved us so much, you were glad to come. And in that paradox and dichotomy and tension, we find the beauty and the truth of Christmas. And I'm praying our hearts would grab hold of that tonight. We would say, oh, we are the woe-begottens. We're those who need a saving, those who need a rescue. If you're here tonight and you're saying, man, I need that this Christmas Eve. I've avoided God somehow, been avoiding him and putting him out with my work and my time, with my own morality. Some of us, you've even used your goodness maybe as a way to stand clear of God. Faith, church. But tonight, like the world did in its own way a couple of thousand years ago, you may get to start over tonight. We get to start again. Jesus, would you come in a fresh way and touch our hearts? If you're here tonight and you're saying, man, I need that, just would you begin in your own way, begin to say, Jesus, come. Receive me into your kingdom. I turn my back on my own life. Would you connect me to your name, and to your heart, and to your family? I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more info about how to get and stay connected to Mosaic Church, please visit us online at www.mosaicchurchaustin.com or download our app from your app store.